My current musical squeeze, by which I mean the thing that I'm listening to lots of times, uh, is uh, this piece of music by Percy Granger. It's Green Bushes. It's something uh, which, on repeat listens, I now realise is effectively a set of really tight variations based on um, uh, a theme. And that theme is what you hear at the beginning of Green Bushes. Um, and it's an English folk song. And I first heard Green Bushes as sort of a seven or eight minute piece uh, played by. I think there are two pianos in it. And effectively, a sort of a chamber group, a, uh, uh, a group of soloists who all have what sounds like a very, very complicated part to play. And when they all mix in with one another, some of the sounds that they create, some of the sounds that are created as a result of them um, mixing together are incredible. They are... Um, uh, the, the, the sounds excite me. That's, that's the only thing I can really say about it. And I first heard it at the proms, and I was... Where was I sat? I was sat in the stalls, quite close to the stage. The great thing about the Albert Hall is that you can... You can sit in the stalls, but basically it's a horseshoe, so you can sit in the stalls right at the back. If you sit in the stalls right at the back, that's great, but it's nowhere near as good as sitting in the stalls quite close to the stage. And if you're going to be close to the stage, be sure that you're really, really close to the front in the stalls because there are some positions where where you end up with a view that makes you think, that tricks you into thinking partway through the concert that you're actually sat on the stage with the musicians. And uh, that's that's where I was sat during this this late night performance of Green Bushes by the Northern Symphonia. I had never heard Green Bushes before and it was so full of life and energy and joyousness and utterly gorgeous textures that were created not just by individual instruments but textures that were created as a result of instruments combining there there is one of the undeniable joys of orchestral music which i think may possibly be lost on people who are used to pop music or um recorded music certainly overproduced studio recorded music um uh anyway that's a digression the the, the point is green bush is incredible i've just been listening to it loads and loads and loads and loads and loads uh, and i was listening to it on the way to an interview that i arranged 
for this particular podcast uh, with Mark Pemberton, who is the director of the Association of British Orchestras. Uh, and I was very excited to meet him. Uh, he didn't realise that at the time. I just merely said when when I finally arrived in the office, oh, hello, how lovely to meet you. Um, I did come clean as to why I was 10 minutes late for the interview. I had... Um, I had asked Google, I thought I'd asked Google where the Association of British Orchestras was in London, and I thought that Google had told me that it was 21 to 22 Rupert Street. I got there, and I discovered that there were there were two different buzzers at 21 to 22 Rupert Street, um, and... Uh, and they were helpfully labelled flat one and flat two. I kept pressing pressing both of them, getting quite annoyed uh, as I was pressing them because I was thinking, come along, come along, I've got an interview at 11 o'clock and uh, I really don't want to be late for this. If somebody could, if somebody on the reception desk could just answer, answer the buzzer, that would be great. And, and I kept pressing the buzzers uh, and nobody, nobody responded. And then I thought, I know, I'll call the number. So I called the number. Uh, and then a very helpful lady on on the phone said, "Hello, um, uh, yes, that's fine. Um, if you if you just want to come in, I kept pressing the door, uh, and I couldn't get in. And then and then finally, a a Chinese woman came to the door, opened the door, and glared at me. Uh, and then the person on the phone said, "No, where are you? We're we're not in Rupert Street." Um, and then she gave me the address that I needed to go to. Basically, Google had sent me to the wrong place. And um, it was terribly embarrassing because I then had to have a conversation with somebody who didn't understand what I was saying. Uh, I was slightly annoyed. And um, and then I was late for the interview, which is never a good way to start. But I've got to say, Mark Pemberton was utterly, utterly charming. And he had some very interesting things to say about how orchestras are funded, where the lazy thinking around, lazy writing around sort of elitism and poshness and inaccessibility about classical music concerts, where that comes from, where that originates from. And, well, it was just a bit of a joy to be in his company, really. Why do we need an association of British orchestras? Okay, well, look, everybody has, everybody has an association. There are association of hoteliers, right. association of restaurants, associations of, you know, this, that and the other. Um, uh, but the reason why orchestras need an association is because um, there are legislative issues that they need to get to grips with. And what I've, well, the way I always describe it is, that is we do three things. We do connecting, we do championing, we do developing. The connecting is that we just bring lots and lots of people together who work in orchestras so they can share what they do, learn from each other, and just get better at the jobs that they do. Because being quite a fragile industry, people really need to know what they're doing and so they can do their job efficiently, fast, and without stumbling into the regulatory obstacles that can all too easily be erected. You describe it as fragile. What do you mean? Well, I mean fragile? that then in terms of the championing bit, I think that's where I mean. Because basically, uh, where orchestras are different, and classical music is different from other art forms, but I, I include in this opera and ballet, are these accusations of elitism and irrelevance? See, our colleagues in theatre don't really get that. 
Visual art certainly doesn't get it. There's a whole buzz about contemporary art. Everything is contemporary art. But we have to constantly field these accusations from politicians and the media. The way in which classical music is dressed up as you know, the kind of lazy tropes that the media and the cinema industry tend to use. I, mean, I, was, uh, I gather, for example, there's this excruciating-sounding film called something like Me Between You or something that's just out at the moment, right? And apparently there is a scene where they go to a concert and everybody's wearing black tie. Because, of course, that's what everybody does at classical music concerts. Or look at the end of Billy Elliot. Right, at the end of Billy Elliot, we are meant to believe that this kid has grown up and he's become Adam Cooper in the Matthew Bourne Swan Lake, yeah? And the camera pans to the audience, and they're all in black tie. What? Why? You know, so we have to deal with these perceptions that in some way this is what posh people like, and only posh people go. If, if Billy Elliot was not a better dancer but an actor, and... The camera what, panned out, cam- it wouldn't... It, what would the audience look like? They wouldn't be wearing black tie, would right. they? They would just be a normal audience. If they were wearing black tie, would it be a problem for the theatre? Yeah. It's, okay. But I don't think the. Okay. But I don't think that, that there is a cliche. There are cliches applied to us that we have to contest, and so what we have to do is we have to keep pointing out that classical music, actually, and let's also not get hung up with classical music. We tend to talk about orchestral music. You know what orchestras do is orchestral music, so it's just as valid. The work that they do in other genres, like working with rock and pop bands, it's just as valid. The film scores that they're they're doing. Um, But, of course, there's also the core classical that's taking place on the concert platform. Um, This is all part and parcel of what orchestras do. So we've been running a campaign recently called Orchestras Everywhere that just points out that actually orchestras are, you're hearing them all the time, they're the soundtrack to everybody's lives. They are there and intrinsic to all aspects of our music. It's just music. It's just part of music. Um, uh, so that's, and that's a role that only the ABO can play because we have to focus on orchestras and our colleagues in Opera and Ballet, who have orchestras too, of course, around the dealing with these, the public perception that doesn't work to our advantage. We also, of course, are there to, as I say, deal with some other little legislative problems around tax and visas and touring and this sort of stuff that just makes life a bit easier for our members. Where do you think those lazy tropes originate from. I understand that lots of people, perhaps journalists, politicians, uh, commentators uh, and also disinterested parties are are responsible for it but was there a moment in the past there must have been a moment in the past when that started well, well, actually, do you know what? I mean, it's interesting. There's a, there's a fantastic film called Gold Diggers of 1933 and it's in that as well. There's the character played by Dick Powell is the composer who comes from a posh Boston background um, but wants to write musicals and is hanging out with the, the, with the people who are scraping a living in musical theatre. And there's a scene where his older brother says, you're letting the family down, you should come back to us. And, and, and he, Dick Powell's character says, yeah, you just want me to be there at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. You have to be dead to be going to that. And um, so already back in the 1930s, you've got this, this thing that there's classical, which is posh and old, and musical theatre, which is young and dynamic. It may well be that this prejudice actually therefore comes out of the USA. Because, as we know, USA, the American orchestras, are driven by the money that they can fundraise. So they are very much dependent on very wealthy individuals 
they have these huge boards of up to 80 people who are providing significant sums of money. Um, and I think that actually, and because popular culture is very much dictated by, what, by the USA, I think it's, that it's come from there. And of course, we, and, it's, and the next layer of where it's a problem is in the old, are in the English-speaking countries. So the USA has got a real image problem and wrestles with this. Then you've got England, uh, UK, Australia, Canada. They've got the, they're the next layer down, which is that they get a bit of public funding, but they're still heavily dependent on private money. And they are also um, uh, have applied to them this public perception that it's an elitist activity. Once you're on the continent, mm. once you're to continental Europe, it starts to evaporate. It suddenly isn't such a problem. So how is it that they... Because I've sensed that. Yeah. I've never really been able to put my finger on it when I've gone yeah. to concerts abroad. Why is it they, they are more comfortable? Is that because there's less of an issue of class on the continent? Uh, I don't know. There are some countries where, like the Netherlands, where their public subsidy is under scrutiny. And, um, but actually, but since you're into Germany, I mean, Germany or Finland, I mean, here's an interesting statistic. So in the UK, we have 15 symphony orchestras. I have politicians who are telling me that's too many. Why do we have so many symphony orchestras? 15. That's the same number as they have in Finland. Finland's a country of 5 million. We're a country of 60, what is it, nearly 70 million. So basically, they have one orchestra for every 300,000 citizens. We have one for every 4 million. So where does this perception come from? We have too many. So it's, it's kind of weird. Whereas in the continent, I think it's just accepted that. But the arts is what we do. The arts is what makes us civilised. The arts is intrinsic to our national identity. Um, we support an orchestra and an opera company and a, gal- a gallery and a museum, and, and it doesn't. There's no difference between them. They're just what a civilized city would have. Whereas we're constantly fighting, and the trouble is also because we're fighting for a much smaller pot of public money, we tend to fight amongst ourselves. And other art forms would equally attack us as being the oh that elitist thing. Why does it get so much money? We can be our own worst enemies. Uh, having said that, you did say a few years ago, a couple of years ago, that uh, classical music is more popular than we give it credit for. Yes. How do you make that out? Okay, so every three years, uh, we do a big statistical analysis of our members. And we were really surprised, and all of us were really surprised, that when we, and, and this is absolutely a rigorous, we, we, we commissioned an outside company to do this work for us. They'd done the same data collection three years before with the same orchestras. And it showed a 25% increase in audiences for concerts. Didn't show such an increase for opera. That, pretty, that was a very, much, 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 a very modest increase. So overall, of course, all our membership is a 16% increase. But just looking at the pure classical concerts, 25% increase in audiences. So when people say, oh, classical music is dying, or in fact, not just is it dying, it's already dead, we go, well, how can that be? Because in fact, look at the numbers that are going, going through the box office. My We've secret. seen this increase, but the paradox... Sorry, no, no, really fine, no, The no. paradox was that while we'd seen that substantial increase in audiences, we'd seen a reduction in income. Okay, why? Because we're doing far more free concerts, far more low-cost concerts. We're, we're doing a lot of... You know, it's not expensive to go to a concert. Uh, and, and as we've constantly but told... But it is expensive to put it on. Yeah, so... All, yeah, and this brings us to the, the, the problem mm. of what we call a business model, which is that actually intrinsic to going to a concert is the fact that every time we put on a concert, we are going to lose money because the amount that we can get on the box office, because ticket pricing is market sensitive, 
we have to charge our customers less than the cost of actually putting on that concert. Because if you've got 90 musicians on the concert platform all earning a professional rate of pay, plus the conductor, and then plus the hall hire, uh, and everything else that goes with putting on that concert, and the administrative staff who were there to support them, um, it's a very, very expensive night. And you cannot get that from the box office. Now, this applies to every country in the world. The same structural deficit applies whether you're in the USA, whether you're in the UK, or whether you're in a continental European country. The issue is then where you, how you plug that gap. Where do you find the money that meets that deficit? Otherwise, you know, every orchestra in the world would be bankrupt. Well, in the USA, as I say, it's around rich people. Uh, here, it's a mix of what we could fundraise against what we get in subsidy. And in context of Europe, those orchestras could be getting 80% of the money in the form of government funding. They're in a very luxurious position to be in. They're not, have, therefore, having to think so um, acutely about how you know, earned income and how we... You know. So we've actually, interesting enough about UK British orchestras is we've got one of the highest ratios and average of, of earnings. We're earning about a 50, half of what we... Half our turnover we've earned. It's very high. Because, you know, as I say, Continental Europe can only be, might only be 20%. And the funny thing is, in the USA, we had a visit last year from the chair and chief executive of the San Francisco Symphony. And they told us that they also only actually, uh, only 20% of their income is, is from the box office. And 80% is coming from private funders. So we, we, are, we try to keep ourselves lean and mean, earn, what we, earn our keep, but we'll never ever, unless you can do... You know, if you do a vast, con you know, if you do a big spectacular in the Albert Hall with its five and a half thousand seats, you could probably break even on that concert. It's all to do with the fact that there's not enough seats in the concert hall to generate the the revenue. I have heard this. Yes, I've heard other people say that the irony is that concert halls just aren't big enough. Um, you know, in terms of in terms yeah. of spreadsheets. Yeah. Uh, isn't that a bit of a difficult message to sell in a cash-strapped time? Yeah, but equally, you don't want too big a concert hall because you also no, want indeed. you no. also want the music to be quite intimate just, and, just, and approachable. No, absolutely, uh, you know, you, it's only you know where it works in the Albert Hall is when there's fireworks and it's big. Hmm. But how, where does that put a pewed instrument ensemble or a contemporary yeah, music? Clearly, group? there is something about proximity to the stage which enhances the listening yeah. experience. Yeah. I totally understand. Because like not every play, you're going to want to go to an arena to see a play. Yeah. <laughs> no, indeed. Mm. Uh, I'm just. I'm struck by when you say, when you hear it out loud, you know, when you put on a concert, you're not going to break even, or you're not going to mm. cut the costs. That's a really stark message. Mm. And so I wonder how, when you communicate that in the, in the business world, or when uh, fundraisers communicate that in the business world, how that message goes down. Does it, yeah, are businessmen going, really? Yeah, Why they are. You absolutely, that? absolutely. You know, we have, I've heard, literally, business, they just say, Business people, especially because obviously we bring business people onto our boards, and they say, that's no way to run a business. Mm. You're doing it all wrong. Mm. Come on, you're doing it all wrong. You're, you're messing up. There must be a different way. Well, if we knew a different way, we'd have invented it many, many years ago. As I say, we, we've had this intrinsic the structural deficit inherent in the orchestral model ever since orchestras were founded. Uh, it, it was ever thus. You know, when they were founded, they might have had a royal patron who'd simply covered the difference. You know, it's, it was ever thus. So um, there is no obvious solution. 
and that's why subsidy has to exist. Uh, what are the most exciting partial solutions that you've noticed over the past eight years? Well, on the financial side, difficult on the financial side, because obviously we're, I presume we're going to shift into a kind of new audiences yes. side. But in terms of the actual financial side, ooh, yeah, I haven't really seen anything, because as I say, what we've done is we've got better at getting audiences in, but all we do is then lose more money. Um, but I think but will well, it be okay though? I think that, well, I think that there are some things that we don't. Well, the first thing is, I've got to be very careful how we say this, is you obviously have to look at your expenditure side. Yes. You know, it's not just about the income, it's also about what you spend. And basically, over the next few years, we're going to have to work very closely with the musicians around what the working life of the musician is going to be like in the future that works in the interests of the orchestra and not against it. And so there may need to be more flexibility and more, more, and, and more getting everybody on the same team around tapping up private money and what, what we can all do together to keep the, an orchestra going. But the main thing that the ABO has done, which is going to help on the, in the climate of de- declining public subsidy out of the Arts Council or Scottish Government or whatever, has been that we've persuaded the Treasury to treat orchestras like film companies, TV companies and theatre companies and have extended to them this thing called creative tax relief. So what that's going to mean is that you will be treated like a business uh, and that the production costs of putting on a concert, there will be a a tax money will come back. Even if you're not paying tax, you'll still get tax money back if you pay the tax. Um, which will create an additional stream of public money into orchestras. So that which we won as the ABO, we lobbied for that successfully, will bring in some money back in that recognises this problem that, of course, the other thing to bear in mind about putting on a concert that is also uh, where a lot of people don't seem to get this at all, I actually had some Treasury civil servants who I suddenly dawned on me as I talked to them because they said, well, of course, you're not like theatre or blah, 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 because you have very little preparation costs. And I said, really? And then I worked out what they meant was they didn't realise orchestras had to rehearse. Oh, no, of course. Okay. Yeah. So that's the other thing to bear in mind is when you're putting on a concert, if you've had to do four or five rehearsals, you're not getting an income on those rehearsals. That's all no. expenditure. All being paid out. Musicians do that for free, don't they, Mark? Uh, that's how it works. <laughs> you know, you are dealing with highly trained. Yeah. You know, it's taken them years to get to the ability, and it's highly competitive getting to an orchestra. Uh, these are people at the top of their game. Every single member of the orchestra was probably the leader of their local youth orchestra, was, was, or, or principal in their local youth orchestra. They were, you know, the best musician at their school, got into the highly competitive process of getting into a music conservatoire, getting into an orchestra. You know, they are not, you know, they deserve to be paid I also hear quite a lot of hand-wringing uh, around introducing new people to the concert hall. Mm. Uh, and in some, in some quarters, I hear sort of people being almost apologetic about the genre, and I wonder whether we need to stop treating audiences, you know, handling them with kid, kid gloves and just... I don't know how we welcome it's them so, in, that's what I'm saying. It's and so that. tricky because, yeah, you have a core audience who actually like the rituals uh, and the sacredness of the experience. And, you know, they are our key supporters. They're very often our donors as well as our customers. And we mustn't mustn't alienate them. 
And actually, there's every justification for a lot of the music needing to be, for people to be quiet, reverential. You know, this is a special experience. There's also, of course, a place for presenting the music in a different way, in different locations. It's not to say it's one or the other. It's just to say that both should work side by side. I get really cross with politicians when they, they kind of say, oh, stop doing all the boring stuff. Do the exciting stuff. Do, do that, because that's cause got to get down with the kids. What do you think they mean by exciting? Well, because, because they have very short attention spans. Right, okay. So therefore, they assume that everybody has short attention spans, and they can't understand how anybody can sit in a concert for two hours without and fidgeting and checking, their twi- and checking their Twitter feed. They would sit in a cinema for two hours, potentially, yeah. and what, or, or watch a double episode again. You're absolutely friends. right. You're absolutely right. How do you stop yourself from not... I mean, I clearly... Well, from standing up and punching I mean, them in the nose. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, yeah. you are uh, a, passionate, um, a passionate advocate and something yeah. that orchestras need. But actually, when you're in those conversations, I know how I feel when I hear you mm. report it. How do you feel when you're having that conversation? I... Uh, I feel that, look, it's that everybody's entitled to their opinion. Um, and I do think, you know, even I have gone to the occasional concert where it, yeah. It hasn't you, quite worked. Yeah, and no. you can get a bit fidgety, okay? Yeah. It happens. And that's okay too. But that's the live experience, you know? Yes. That's the other times, the other times it's incredibly exciting. Yes. Um, and, it is the jo- and I think it is the job of orchestras and it is the job of both management and musicians to remember that for somebody in that hall, it's probably the first time they've been to a concert. Not everybody is, has the experience. But when you're confronted with that sort of lazy thinking, and I'm not picking out mm. politicians in yeah. particular, do you, do you have a sense, do you sort of have a, a, are you motivated to sort of pick off everybody one by one and go, no, you're wrong about that? Or, or actually, do you have to just step back and go, we'll deal with it in a slightly different way. Do, do you challenge those views on a one-to-one basis, or do you... Yeah, the best thing is just to have a, a sensible argument, but while also, of course, creating the mechanism by which we can be telling those stories on a wider basis. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, it's... But, you know, it, it is... I mean, it's not easy. But anyway, as I say, there is a space for making sure that the music is presented in different ways and in different locations, absolutely, totally. Um, I'm still, the jury is out, I would say, on whether there is actually any traffic between those two audiences. That I'm not sure that somebody who's had a great experience in a kind of club environment is going to make the journey in, is necessarily going to make the journey to the more traditional concert. I'm wondering if it, and, and whether that, I don't necessarily think that even matters, because all we're talking about is broadening our audience. What it isn't, is a money maker, a, a sol- doesn't solve the structural deficit, because very often those whiz bang club night concerts are a, your persuade your, you know, there, for example, there was quite a, uh, a buzz a few years back for things like Yellow Lounge, Limelight, those sorts of things, which isn't orchestral, which is where an artist is presenting in a club mm-hmm. situation. But the deal on that was that the artist wasn't getting paid because they're flying in for the grown-up concert anyway. So they're doing a concert in the Barbican or Festival Hall. Oh, by the way, because you're in London, would you mind doing this for us? Just do this gig? Uh, and they go, yeah, that's great. I like the sound of that. But, but it's, it's on, hanging on the coattails, or should I say tailcoats, nice. of 
the grown-up concert. Maybe. It's not... I understand that maybe uh, we're not expecting people to go from uh, the club location to the concert hall. Maybe the... Maybe the point is that they're not going to make that transition yet. Maybe they're going to make that transition in 10 yeah. years' time. Yeah. I wonder whether there's a similar principle with radio. Well, there is. I do. Which yeah. is, you know, like yeah. I but I can say, radio. what I can say is, if you, I, I, one of my orchestras told me that going back through like minutes from decades and decades ago, you know, again, back into the 30s, they were bemoaning where the next generation of audiences were going to come okay. from. Okay, they've all had the same problem then. Yeah. Right. So, but I think there is an issue here, which is that I think. The, the assumption was made that younger people would always kind of explore the popular repertoire, but they'll come to us eventually. Yes. Yeah? Um, they'll grow is that up. Also, is that and they'll, grow, they'll grow into classic. Yeah, because. Okay. But then the, the problem now is actually, a lot of people are never going to make that journey because the rock music is now the old music. Mm-hmm. If you think the average, the original, look at the founder members of the Stones, and the average age now is over 70. And they're still on the road. And they've taken their audience with them. But if you look at an orchestra, very often the average age of the orchestra is going to be in the 30s. So we've got old music played by young people and what's called young music played by old people. And our problem is, in a way, that the people who love their rock and pop are never going to need to change because the rock and pop is just as old as they are. Uh, This is why there's a fantastic speech made by Paul Morley at our conference back in 2014, which is on our website, where, at, where he describes how actually we forget that, in fact, the, the rock and pop market has become all heritage and, and unimaginative and has lost all real sense of revolution. And the real revolution lies in, back in those bunkers in contemporary music where really radical things are still being done and the revolutionary spirit that informs so much of the earlier classical music. And we just got to remember that we were the revolutionaries and we were the new and stop beating ourselves up and trying to place ourselves in as a sort of heritage product but actually maintain the sense that we are as contemporary as any other art form. How would you introduce, so specifically, I'd like you to tell me how you would introduce someone to classical music and a concert who's never been performed. Well, I think, A, the first thing is look at the repertoire that's going to be at that concert. Uh, Don't throw them in necessarily at the deep end or, you know, and confront them with a a Mammoth Bruckner opera. Uh, Sorry, Bruckner Symphony. You know, Mammoth Bruckner Symphony. Okay. No Bruckner. Yeah. But I would think that you would probably... And and also, I think that there's also... uh, I think it's overlooked that actually for a lot of young... for younger people, an introduction to classical music you probably want to start, actually, with the stuff that's really well-known. Again, because they're going to go for the first time. So why not take them to a Four Seasons? Why not take them to a Beethoven Five? Because it's going to have some element of familiarity to them. So it's not going to be... Whereas some people say you you should throw them straight into some difficult contemporary music. (laughs) Stick them in with the contemporary music. Actually, as as a listener, I derive an enormous amount of pleasure from listening to something that doesn't have any legacy whatsoever. There are no expectations with contemporary music. It is, it is uh, in some respects, really straightforward. Uh, and that's why I think it's all about listening. But, I mean, obviously this is not meant to yeah. be about me. But you said about classical music, and I think, you should, I think there's nothing wrong with introducing people to core classical repertoire. Because, as I say, they're going to suddenly realise, oh, actually, I, do, I know this. Yes, yes. Okay. I know this. And yet this, is cla- not, this is not unfamiliar. And yet in I the guess cla- this. In yeah. the classical music scene, 
there are snobs who will say, oh, well, you know, that's, they have five. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's Tchaikovsky's one lake excerpt. It's not, you know, it's not any good. Which, uh, d- that's why not, not really helping. But why not? Why not? And certainly you're going to find it's on somewhere. Yes. You know. um, uh, okay. So, so I, think, I think, A, I think it's around, you know, uh, yeah, so being savvy about, you know, let's, let's just try to remember what it was like to go the first time for yourself. And I mean, most of us were introduced to classical music through some of the core repertoire. How did you get introduced? Me? Yes. Actually, I got it all through leader and opera. Right. It wasn't through symphonic music. So the first, the first exposure. So obviously, as right. somebody who was coming out of, was working in theatre, opera is... It is theatre, yes. but they are singing, and there is an orchestra playing. So it is in the it's classical repertoire, but of course it's visual when you go to the opera. But from that, I started then listening to the opera, listening to opera recordings. So really getting into the music. Leader, I always think leader. You know, let's face it, leader are pop songs. Leader are three tend to be three minute songs, really simple, uh, but but and, and and absolutely beautiful. So I think often it's actually. You know, I shouldn't say this has run the ABO, but it's leader recitals, chamber music is actually very often where you could start because it's really honing in, in, in into the heightened emotion of, of you know of music in miniature almost. So you were introduced, introduced to classical music when you were, or introduced yourself yeah. when you were working in theatre. Yeah. So kind of in my twenties. So before then, you hadn't really considered it. No, you know, my parents listened to Radio Three, and I thought, God, that's boring. Right. Yeah. Judgy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, I'm into, I'm into rock. Me. Yeah. yeah. I, I get that, and I'm finally scared by that because yeah. I'm really not. Yeah. Um, uh, in uh, when you leave your role as director of the ABO, I don't have any insight. As if. Uh, yeah. As if. Okay. Yeah. Are they going to have to uh, prize your yeah. card from your your cold dead hand? But when you when you go, what will you uh, be able to look on as? I did that. I did that. Okay. Two things that I did that actually are. Well, uh, I saw off a major threat to the survival of all orchestras, which you had to keep relatively quiet, which was there was a, just a ruling around national insurance treatment for freelance musicians that could have killed everybody stone dead. And we solved it and we got rid of it. And that's a real triumph because I saved everybody's bacon. And then this getting the orchestra tax relief, but then also lobbying successfully to get a new source of money. Really, really good. But I think, um, yeah. Um, but I think also... The fact that I have taken the fight to the politicians and said, come on, you know, you've got to treat us like, you know, don't treat us like idiots, you know, listen to what we're doing, see the value of what we, of what we bring. And I think the other thing I'm quite proud of is that we're beginning now to be seen as a sector, and the ABO has helped with this, as global leaders. You know, people on the, across the world are knocking on my door now saying, we'd really like to look at how British orchestras have coped with a reduction in public subsidy but have appeared to be surviving and adapting to that changing climate. Um, and leadership, how good our guys are at running the organisations. And other countries are coming to us saying, we'd really like to learn from you. What's good leadership look like? We look at you as, as, as absolutely being great at what you do and how you lead your organisations. You've been listening to a Thoroughly Good podcast produced by me, John Jacob. Get in contact by tweeting me at Thoroughly Good or send me an email to thoroughlygood at gmail.com.